Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. I have the passage there for you on the insert. Acts chapter 2 describes the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy about the Spirit coming to empower them to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria. The end of the earth even. This, the Holy Spirit coming would empower them to do something the people of God had never seen, the expanse of which they had never even imagined as it would go to all tribes, tongues, and nations over the course of time. Even now, it continues to roll forward. Uh, Pentecost. Pentecost is the Greek name for 50th. It has to do with um, the Jewish feast of the harvest or the first fruits. Uh, they call this the Pentecost in Greek. The Pentecost happened 50 days after Passover. The Passover feast and then the Pentecost feast 50 days later. And the beautiful parallel is Jesus is sacrificed as the Passover lamb on the Passover this year. It so happened in God's providence that people from all over the world, the known world at that time, would have been in Jerusalem for Passover. Jews who lived in other parts of the world came to Jerusalem. You remember back in our study of Isaiah, there was a time at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry when ten tribes of Israel were lost to Assyria, the lost tribes of Israel. And as tribes, they were lost. But there were individuals, Jewish individuals, in those tribes who carried on their devotion in foreign lands. 700 years later, there were Jews in various nations speaking different languages, even different races, mixed races. And they were in these places, they would come back at Passover to celebrate Passover. And this Passover is the one that Messiah is revealed. And they come to see this is Messiah. And he dies as their Passover lamb. He's raised again. He ascends into heaven, spends these 40 days, and then in the 50th day, the Holy Spirit comes. And we call it Pentecost now. The fulfillment of what Jesus promised happens here or begins to happen here. And it continues to unfold even in our day, some 2,000 plus years later. Here as I read God's holy word, Acts chapter 2, the first 13 verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. 
Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have your word open to one of the most significant events in redemption history. In this passage, we see your empowering, the empowering of your church to grow and spread. In this passage, we see your divine power at work and on display, setting the foundation of what would come after, and we experience even now as you continue to grow your kingdom. Please shed light on your word by your spirit so that we might understand this text and its significance for us today as believers. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It is indeed true. The sending of the Holy Spirit in this refreshed way or refreshing way or enhanced way is one of the most important chapters in redemption history. Salvation started very narrow in the Old Testament when God announced his gospel would, would come to pass through the seed of the woman. But it grows wider and wider, and now it just busts open with the Spirit's special ministry of empowering to be witnesses. Now, I want to be clear about something because it's often misunderstood. The church didn't start here. The church started with the first person God redeemed in the Old Testament. The church are God's called out people. Uh, and the Holy Spirit didn't actually do something utterly new just in a more enhanced way, in a wider spread way. Uh, the people here were Christians before the Holy Spirit came in this way. They already believed. Uh, they were waiting, they were praying, they were trusting in Christ to send the Spirit. They were searching the scriptures to discern his will. They were Christians. But this coming of the Holy Spirit busts open something that had never been seen among the people of God. Now it would go beyond one nation. It would go beyond one locale. Finally, the promises of to Abraham would be fulfilled as all the nations would be able to hear the mighty works of God as captured in the finished work of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Everyone would be able to hear this now. Now people came from other nations to the Jews who had this message. But now the Spirit would give special abilities to the people of God to boldly proclaim Christ with great effect in a way that was unprecedented before. And he starts with the apostles, by building the apostles up, um, working through the apostles, inspiring them to write scripture. So much is happening here at Pentecost. We have to have the Holy Spirit in this way to grow in Christ, to see the kingdom expand. John Stott says it very well in his comments on this passage. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. And he captures it this way very vividly. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. For the apostles to have evangelistic success to see the church grow as God intended, they would need the filling of the Holy Spirit that we have here introduced in an enhanced way. For the kingdom of God to advance upon the earth, God the Spirit must give special empowerment. Indeed, for the church to be victorious, the Holy Spirit of God must carry out the work through the multiplication of disciples. To be very clear, the Holy Spirit had been at work but now the Holy Spirit would open up in a new way not seen before. Remember, the Holy Spirit was active at creation, hovering over the face of the deep. 
The Holy Spirit worked in the hearts of men and women before Pentecost. In the Old Testament, David prays that the Spirit would not be taken from him. The Spirit spoke through him. Jesus enters this public ministry full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit. Even the people waiting for Pentecost to occur, they were believing on Christ, studying his word, worshiping, praying. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, however, ushers in a more profound, wide-ranging ministry that had not been seen before this time. And it's the thing that continues to empower God's mission today. The kingdom of God is expanded because of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Not because of our strategies, not because of the approaches we take, not because of our talent or our money or our resources. Because the Holy Spirit sees fit to grow the kingdom of Christ, it happens. And it even happens quite opposed to all the things we do that might be counteractive. The Spirit still works to raise and grow his kingdom. And we see this play out starting here and going on today. Think of that picture of redemption I began to paint for you. It started narrow. When the, sin, the first sin happened, God announces that he'll send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. So he'll send Jesus. In Genesis 3, we already know this will be the case. But it starts narrow. It goes up through the patriarchs, the covenant uh, of God's grace that is mentioned there grows, but it's still narrow as compared to all, humani- to all humanity. It grows through the patriarchs. It leaves off with Joseph, and Joseph's got just a, a hundred people or so, and they're in Egypt. When we pick up with Moses, there's two million people now, and Moses leads them out of Egypt in the Exodus. Over the course of time, Israel grows as a kingdom. It becomes known as an entity. It's given a temple. It's given a locale. There's some knowledge about what Israel believes in the God they worship. There's some displays of this God's power. It's growing. More people know, but it's hard to get in. It's hard to know who this God is. They could proselytize. That's what happens. Go through the God of Israel to to come to know the Redeemer. People could do that, but it was still narrow. But when the Messiah finally comes and ascends into heaven, the thing he does that opens up the Abrahamic promises so that all the people of earth would be blessed is he sends his spirit to remind those original disciples who became apostles what it is that Jesus taught, to inspire them to continue writing scripture, to indwell and fill the people of God so that they could spread the gospel, and they spread it in the known world even in that first century. It spread immediately, exponentially, and it has been going that way ever since. This is the beginning of that endeavor that we have before us, Pentecost, as it's so called. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. But with the spirit, we are living, and we're dynamic, and we're growing. Let's look at this monumental event a little closer, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. We know from chapter 1, the disciples, 11 of them, now added Matthias to fill the place of Judas, There were 120 believers, though, in all. It wasn't just the the apostles now. Um, 120 people or so, and they were all there together. And what happens? Something is heard, something is seen, and something is spoken. Um, There's wind, there's fire, uh, there's a filling of the Spirit, there's there's speaking in other languages, all of this indicating that Jesus' prophecy had come true. First, there's a sound that they notice, and it's likened to wind, the sense that wind is powerful, so the Spirit comes, 
Verse 1 again, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So they heard the sound, but it wasn't actually wind. It was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So there's clarity that something is happening. There's no denying it. It's powerful. And the use of wind in symbolism is important because it's used of the Spirit in the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament uh, or Hebrew word is ruhah, which is spirit and wind are very closely related. Um, during the creation itself, the breath of life was breathed in to Adam and Eve. Uh, the Holy Spirit likened to wind also when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. You remember that interchange. Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's this connection with wind in its sovereignty. It does what it wants. You don't know where it's from, and it's powerful. And there is a sound like a mighty rushing wind that alerted them to God's presence and to his power. Uh, James Boyce said this, the coming of the Holy Spirit as a wind was meant to symbolize the coming of the creative power of God to inaugurate a new era in which men and women would be brought to spiritual life. When I was first a believer in the mid-80s, um, someone introduced me to the music of Keith Green. Um, when I first started listening to Keith Green's music, and he had died by that time in a, in a plane crash, and he was only 29 years old. He had done many songs. There were a couple different albums that captured all of his songs. And I watched a progression in his singing. He started out very dutiful, and it kind of struggled with the concept of grace. And then by the end, by the last few uh, songs that he wrote, you, you sensed a much more humble um, recognition of the complete dependence we have on God's grace for everything. It's, it's a neat progression to watch in that man's life. But a song that he sang that always struck me, uh, and still does to this day, and I think it's good for me personally, and it's good for us corporately when we think about our need for the Holy Spirit. He said, rushing wind blow through this temple. He was talking about himself, though. Rushing wind blow through this temple, blowing out the dust within. It's a great picture of our stale Christian lives sometimes. Rushing wind blow through this temple, blowing out the dust within. Come and breathe your breath upon me. I've been born again. Now, it wasn't that he wasn't a believer before. He was asking for a filling of the Spirit, a renewal of the Spirit that would blow out the dust. The Spirit comes in such a way at Pentecost, corporately and also individually. The sound of wind is descriptive of the Spirit's creative power. But also, there's something that they could see when this happened. They heard this and sensed this, but also there was the appearance or the sight of fire, little flames it's the way it seems to be described. Whenever the, the flame comes, we know the presence of God is there, and we know that there's a purification that happens, or there's a, a recognition of falsehood because light is shined upon it. Verse 3, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, for the people of God, the Jews at this time, they knew God's presence as a flame or as a fire in many ways, but it was singular. Um, it was something that they were aware of. Think of the Abrahamic covenant when God's making his covenant with Abraham and his, he's represented as, as a flame of fire going through the cut elements to symbolize God's presence. It represents God and his presence. The burning bush symbolizes the presence of God speaking to Moses. The pillar of fire led the people of God through the wilderness. 
But here it's not one singular fire representing God's presence. It's something different, and I think it's significant. Instead, there were many flames. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. This enhanced ministry of the Holy Spirit makes it such that each individual believer um, has the presence of God with him or her, and God the Spirit will work to give us boldness in effect when we witness to who Christ is and what he has done. Paul speaks in these terms in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That's quite a break from the location of the temple they knew of. He's saying to believers, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Think about that related to your body, what you do with your body, where you take your, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, whom you have from God. You are not your own. Peter says something along the same lines in 1 Peter 4. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The tongues of fire were illustrating the guiding, purifying presence of the spirit. Fire brings light. Pentecost brought spiritual illumination. Um, The gospel, the the mighty works of God that they were speaking of, the, the mightiest work of God is that of salvation. The gospel brings enlightenment. Jesus brings fire for for purification with his word and presence. This is exactly what John the Baptist forecasted about Jesus. Uh, Matthew records these words from John the Baptist. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Wind, fire, the presence of God, the empowerment of God, something special happening. And notice what it says the Spirit did. Verse 4, the first part of verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, if we were to do a full study on the Holy Spirit, and we started that a couple weeks ago, just a a summary of the various and many ministries the Holy Spirit uh, works. Uh, We'd see see many of them. Um, The filling ministry of the Holy Spirit is what is addressed here in Pentecost. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit fills someone, the Holy Spirit gives them special ability to do God's will in declaring Christ boldly and effectively. That's what it means when the Spirit fills somebody. Now, it's not to be confused with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. These terms can often become confusing. Um, The baptism of the Holy Spirit typically is speaking of regeneration. That's when a person comes to believe The way you know you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit is you believe in Christ. You trust in Christ. These people already believed in Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is initial salvation provided by God's Spirit supernaturally. So if you trust Jesus right now, you you know Christ is your Savior. Uh, It doesn't matter what your feelings are outside of that. You believe that or think that's true because you've been baptized by the Spirit. That's what water baptism symbolizes. The filling of the Spirit in the fashion we see here is unique for the work of gospel proclamation. That's what we see happening here. Remember what the promise in Acts 1-8 is. The Spirit would come to empower them to be his witnesses. And not just locally, everywhere. When filled with the Holy Spirit, Christians immediately begin to testify forcefully and effectively to Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is not limited to pastors and missionaries. All Christians have the presence of God by God's Spirit with them. And you have the ability 
beyond your knowledge to be able to proclaim Christ. Now, I don't mean you'll say something you never heard before. We'll talk about tongues in a moment, what it's meant here. But I just mean that if you know the gospel message and you proclaim Christ, God will give you boldness to do that and effectiveness in his proclamation. And any of us can have that witness as God wills. It's his spirit who does it, who gives us uh, power to overcome our being scared about it or being anxious, to give us more care for God's glory than people's opinions. That's something the Spirit has to give us because we are earthlings and we're bound to earth and we want people to like us. But when the Spirit fills us, we speak the truth boldly and effectively, no matter what, because the Spirit of God does that work. And that's what catches people's notice, who God's also working in by His Spirit, to see this thing from heaven because it's different. I, I have the opportunity to experience this quite a bit because I am a preacher. I believe this is true for every Christian, though. But I could tell you, um, every time I open up the Word of God, it, it's so long as, as much as humanly possible, I am faithful to the Word, and that's something the Spirit has to do too, so I don't take that for granted. It's not something I conjure. But if, it's, if I'm speaking what is true according to the Word, I can know that the Spirit fills me and proclaims that and makes me not care if you like it or not. I mean, I really do want you to like me, but I don't care if you don't like the Word of God because you need to like it. I need to like it. I need to pro it needs to be proclaimed. So God fills people to proclaim it, and that's how he makes it resonate as true. On the other side, the Spirit works. It's all the work of the Spirit. He fills these first new covenant believers, if you want to call them that, after Jesus is ratified on the cross. He fills them with the Spirit for a particular purpose to inaugurate this expansion of the kingdom that will begin from there. And for them, something very specific is manifested. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what is this? What is the significance of this? Why uh, does this occur? Now, for a moment, put aside any of your past experiences in American Christianity about tongues. What you might see on TV or what you've heard. Maybe some of you have grown up in a church like that that teaches, you know, salvation is shown to be real if you speak in tongues. Never mind that that's never been true in church history and all the big giants of the faith that we talk about all the time, they have no record of speaking in tongues. Still people in the last hundred years will try to insist that. Put that out of your mind for a moment. Just look at the text. What is it saying tongues is here? Look closely at verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they're speaking in tongues, which is literally languages. Glossolalia means languages. That's what it means. It doesn't mean ecstatic utterances. It means other languages. So they began to speak in other languages, languages that we can understand they didn't know previously. So that's why the Spirit has to give them utterance. Why? Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Now, see what happened here? Passover in Jerusalem, Jewish people who lived in other nations came from those nations to Passover. They couldn't speak the same language as the inhabitants around Jerusalem who probably spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. They spoke other languages, but they knew the language of the Passover symbolism. They were coming to celebrate it, and even though there was a unity that they had with other believers, they still could not speak the same language. Those people are all there. Verse 5 again, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. That's when the, the wind and the fire occurred, and the people started speaking in other languages. 
as they're listening to languages, the stirring of all these people, they were bewildered because they noticed something. It wasn't like being in a crowded room where everybody's talking and you can't really hear any one conversation. Someone who was from Cappadocia is hearing um, some kind of off-Greek dialect uh, where there's someone from Arabia who's hearing some other kind of dialect and they understand it. Wait a minute, they're talking my language over there and the person doesn't look like me. They're not dressed like me. There's a there's a transcending of all the usual barriers as they're given the ability to speak in a language that other people understand. It's an incredible supernatural display of the Spirit coming to do the work of empowering so the message of the gospel could go to all the nations. Verse 6, And at this sound the multitude came together. They were bewildered. Notice what they do. They come together. It unites them. It brings them together. They're amazed because... One was hearing them speak in his own language. There was a unity happening in what they were hearing. The book of Acts uses glossolalia in this fashion. Foreign languages not previously known. It was the supernatural ability to speak in recognizable languages. Now, I have studied two languages and I, am, I was terrible at them. I, don't, someone literally t- I became a Greek major in Bible college because this is not a joke. I was in line to sign up. I was a pastoral major, which I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I was in line. I want to learn the Bible. And some guy ahead of me started talking about the Bible being written in Greek, and I said, it's in Greek? Really? And 10 people later, I changed my major to Greek. That's how I became a Greek major. And it was torture the whole time. It was difficult. Then I got to seminary and thought, well, se- Hebrew's got to be better than that. No, it's not. So when you tell me that that immediately, and there are people that pick up languages quickly, and they seem to always be in my classes, but for the rest of us, that's hard to imagine learning a language. Maybe you've been around Spanish speakers a lot, and you still can't pick it up. Imagine like that, that supernatural work of the Spirit that makes you speak fluidly a language so that other people can understand, and it's for the purpose of expressing the mighty works of God, which are typified in Christ's redemption. That's the context here. Verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Which is like saying, aren't these just country bumpkins out here, Galileans? But listen to them speaking. How could they know all these languages? And how is it that we hear, verse 8, each of us in his own native language? The point of this supernatural work was to bring unity to a diverse group of believers so they could be sure that the Spirit had come and that the Spirit would continue to give them whatever they needed to spread this message. It wasn't meant as a prescriptive act, like every time you want to have power from God, get together, wait till you speak in tongues. No, this was a picture of something that had been forecasted before. Now it had busted loose in their time, and they got to see it. And it names all the different people, all the different people groups. And for those people on their horizon, this was as far as they could imagine people coming from. Parthenians and Medes and Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. I mean, for the person in the first century uh, in Jerusalem, these are the outer rims of of the world to them. That's as far as they knew. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. If God could overcome boundaries and nations, ethnicities, and all these other walls we put up, he could overcome by giving a different language, certainly he can empower us to be witnesses to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. That's the message of Pentecost. You can be sure that nothing 
would stop God from expanding his kingdom. In this passage, a new unity of the spirit transcends racial, national, and linguistic barriers. It's a multiracial, a multilingual, a multinational nature of the kingdom of Christ that is on full display here. It's a prefigurement of that final day when God gathers all his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And, you know, as Americans, we're going to look like the minority, I believe, when we see all the tribes and the tongues come. Where there is fullness of the Holy Spirit, there is communication, and we see that here. And Pentecost happened to spread out upon the earth from that place. Calvin, in describing this scene, says very succinctly and wisely, if the preachers had spoken only in one tongue, everyone would have thought that Christ was confined to a small corner of Judea. But this was a stark message to the Jews that the Abrahamic covenant was real and that the promises made to Abraham fulfilled through Christ, those blessings would be experienced by every tribe, tongue, and nation. And to prove it, he gives them this gift and this filling of the Spirit to show what is meant from it. What does it mean is a good question to ask, of course. Verse 12 They were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, there were cynics that were around for sure. Verse 13 kind of leads into that. There's some cynics who are watching this thing happen, and they were mocking, and they said, they're all filled with new wine. Now, this is part of the proof that these people were already Christians, and then God filled them. The mockers weren't. They're just looking at it and saying, they're drunk. They're just hammered at 9 a.m. This isn't a, a university town, by the way. This is Jerusalem. So it's 9 a.m., and they are not drunk. In fact, Peter will say it. But in addition to what it does in the moment that they're seeing it, it will connect back to something that the Bible was forecasting all along. So that audiences like us, we could see this phenomenon and say, okay, this isn't something we see normally. What is the backdrop? And we start to look at the Old Testament with new eyes. The forecasting of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant or the expansion of God's gospel or the expansion of Christ's kingdom, all synonymous for the growth that God had planned through the Spirit's work. These things were forecasted in small ways along the way. In Isaiah 28, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, a Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. This is a one-time event that had a particular foundational purpose. Derek Thomas, a very uh, skilled and learned teacher on this topic, writes, The supernatural signs performed by the apostles served to testify to this unique and divine commission that God had given. Thus, the signs that accompanied the apostles in their unrepeatable foundational ministry, the apostles' ministry, were also themselves unrepeatable, temporary, and time-specific. We're reading a passage that's describing what God did to usher in the ministry of the Spirit. It establishes the way that the Spirit empowers to be witnesses. But the particulars are very unique in its inauguration. That's why you don't see flames over people's heads any longer. This was meant to tell something that was starting now in a way that is unprecedented prior. In the prophet Joel, he looks ahead in a very dire time for Israel. And he says, it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, all nations. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even, even on the male and female servants in, who, in those days, I will pour out my spirit. 
There was a forecast of the Spirit's coming throughout the Old Testament, and now it's unleashed as the Messiah ascends into heaven and sends the Spirit to empower his people to be witnesses. Believers set ablaze. The marks of the fulfillment of the pre-ascension promise of Jesus are here in this set of verses. Now they would have what they needed to expand the church. Now they would have what they needed to undergo persecution if need be. The Holy Spirit's empowerment necessary for spiritual victory, personally and for the church and its expansion. Pentecost signaled the presence of God's glory. Pentecost signaled the intent of the Great Commission, world evangelism. Pentecost manifests God's power to accomplish the expansion of the church. Uh, What does this practically mean for us? We can be bold in our witness for Christ. We should care less. We should, I don't mean be uncaring or be a jerk. I don't mean that. But we should care less about what our buddy thinks of this message we proclaim or our neighbor thinks or our coworker thinks or whoever thinks. The Spirit gives us boldness and effectiveness to say what's true and call people to it. Pentecost manifests God's power to expand the church and restore what is broken. I want to close with a tie-in to a story that I believe is, is at least shadowed in this. Uh, we, we have the shadow of it a bit. You remember in early in the book of Genesis, it's kind of a story you read over fast. You have the flood and you have a Noah and then it seems like we're up to Abraham before you know it. Noah to Abraham. But there's an event that happens in between there that's pretty significant that really is damaging um, to man's abilities or God's at least pronounced plan. We see the purpose of it, though. It's that incident after Noah when the people, rather than being fruitful and multiplying and leaving and spreading over the earth to have dominion over it, instead, they see, forget you, God, essentially. We are going to just hole up together, build our own city unto ourselves, and we're going to build a tower in the face of God. Maybe they were building the tower thinking, if God ever tries to send a flood again, I'm going to the top of the tower and he can't get us. Who knows what they were thinking, but it was rebellion. Listen to these words from Genesis chapter 11 and see how it then connects to Acts chapter 2. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. That means they spoke the same language, but they had the same ideas. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and vitamin for mortar. They weren't supposed to hole up in one spot. They said, we're going to do this. Then let's get together and do something we want to do. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Rebelling in the face of God. That's what they wanted to do. They weren't going to do what God told them to do. They're going to do something for themselves and be their own memorial. Verse 5 in Genesis 11, one of my favorite passages in Genesis, is little known. <laughs> They're building the biggest thing that they'd ever built in their, li- in their lives. Humanity had never seen anything like it. Then in verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. You catch that? It's so small to God, he has to come down and see it. He came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people They have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. 
and nothing that they propose to do will be now impossible for them. The evil would only compound in this rebellious state. Then verse 7, in the same kind of language from the original creation, God says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. Are you seeing the parallel with Acts 2? Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Let's break them up. What, what they believe is evil. We need to break them up. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. What a terrible tragedy. They didn't do what God told them and spread out and cover the earth and have dominion over it. They hold up together and said, we'll be our own memorial. So God had to disperse them, had to break them up. And this is where the, the nations, the table of nations breaks forth from Babel. Now, we come to the book of Acts. Jesus is raised again. He rises into, into heaven. He sends his spirit He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's making the nations a footstool, calling them to his salvation. Now something has to be redone. Something has to be undone. And that's what I believe is part of the picture we have in the book of Acts. There's symbolism here that's deeper than just that one-time instance that's supernatural and is these wonders. There's something more. It's God saying, I will bring back these barriers that were erected and I will take them down so that the gospel can reach everybody. And they were all, verse 4 in the passage we're studying, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they can speak each other's language. He wants them to be unified now. Now he wants them to have one language again, the language of Christ crucified. They were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation, and he names all these nations. And we have a reversal, a dramatic reversal of the Tower of Babel where languages were confused in order to spread the people out. Now languages were united to bring the people in. In Babel, the inhabitants proudly ascended to reach the heavens. In Jerusalem, heaven humbly descended to the earth. You know, in reading this story, it can be a bit pessimistic or a pessimistic time for American Christians because Christianity seems like it's on the decline in America. But Pentecost reminds us where the power lies, how God turns things in a moment. We worry too much about trends, not enough about proclaiming the witness of the wonders of God in Christ. God controls the ebb and flow of how popular a thing is or how impacting a thing is. A lot of what has been parading as Christianity in America isn't actually Christianity, so don't fret if that goes away. Cultural pressure will certainly refine the church in America. It will have that effect, if God wills. So while it may seem to be in decline, the opposite may actually be happening. We don't know for sure. But no matter what happens in America, never doubt the movement of God to expand his kingdom the world over. And that's what he's continued to do since Pentecost. Things change in an instance. I remember as we pray for Mary and Woody, who are in Moldova, the poorest of the, Soviet, the former Soviet countries, right? Well, I remember in the 90s, growing up, I grew up in the 80s, and at that time, we had air raid drills in our elementary school because we were convinced the Russians were going to nuke us. That's funny to people today. Uh, not really. That shouldn't be as funny to you as you think. But we thought that they were going to nuke us. So every quarter or so, we would have an air raid siren go off. We'd go in the halls, and we'd, we'd put our heads down and cover our necks so if there was a blast, we might survive it. We lived near Niagara Falls. We were convinced that the Russians were going to nuke Niagara Falls to wipe out the power in the East Coast. 
That's how I grew up in the 80s. Then I got to college, and all of a sudden, the Iron Curtain goes down. And they're calling for us at our Bible college to volunteer to go bring, to go evangelize. Because now what would have been closed completely is immediately, almost overnight, the wall comes down and evangelism happens and the church expands and grows. You see it happen. You know, that happens in the world much more than we understand. Even in China where there's a lot of persecution or in Africa where there's still roving uh, gangs that kill Christians, the church continues to grow. God's Spirit gives Christians boldness in those places to keep speaking the truth of the gospel. And that's how God brings people to himself. He does it over and over again. You know what we should be praying for right now is North Korea. Have you, are you watching what's happening? I mean, how many people uh, here would have imagined in the month what we've seen? And I give full credit to God on this, by the way, because that's what God does. He does this kind of stuff. It's not unusual for him to do. You know, the three prisoners that just escaped from North Korea, two of them are professing believers. I don't know about the third. So there is gospel witness there. But humanly speaking, South Korea has many strong churches. They've been sending missionaries to our country for a long time, praise be to God. Now, if that, if that wall comes down or that demilitary zone becomes a friendly zone and they can go over, imagine the expansion of souls that would be had there. Never doubt the power of the Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit to empower his people to preach boldly the message of the gospel and expand King Jesus' kingdom. That's what he is about. That's what he will do. And he'll never stop doing it. And it can't be stopped. That's what we are tapped into as fellow believers. No matter what happens personally, let's look upward and see what he's doing globally, what he has been doing and will do until Christ comes again. And he'll come the same way he went. And he'll come in glory. And we look forward to that day. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And now we have witnessed in chapter 2, the Spirit has come. And we'll see how this unfolds from here. Let us pray. Lord, it can be easy to think that your kingdom has stalled because of the relatively weakened state of the church in our land. But Lord, as we see the power of the Holy Spirit being unleashed in a new way at Pentecost, we are able to lift our heads and see the span of history and the continual expansion of your kingdom the world over. Lord, please grant us boldness as we consider the supernaturally driven, unstoppable growth of Christ's reign until he comes again in glory. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit and his, his dynamic presence in our lives personally and corporately. Holy Spirit, you are indeed our strength, the strength of all of us who are weak apart from you. Make us strong in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.